I was reminded recently about some people complaining a number of years ago about having to study these latter chapters of the book of Daniel. They said that they didn't find these visions of Daniel to be as interesting and applicable for their life as they did the stories that are found in the earlier chapters of the book of Daniel. And I can see that and understand that. I don't have a big argument with that. I was like, yeah, okay, I can get that. Uh, similar kinds of complaints could be made, I suppose, about other parts of the Bible too. Not every passage of the Bible is equally as interesting or applicable for our life. For example, the chapters in Leviticus that give detailed instructions about various kinds of offerings to be made at the tabernacle, or the chapters of Leviticus giving instructions about how to handle various skin diseases, well, those are not as interesting as the story of David and Goliath, or as applicable as Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. But thinking about this, I thought it would be good for us, uh, before we get into the Bible study this morning, to be reminded of some foundational ideas about why we study the Bible the way that we do at this church. We, we don't do a lot of topical teaching in this church, where a topic is chosen and then verses from all over the Bible are collected together and used to talk about a, that particular topic. That kind of teaching can be really helpful, and we do some topical teaching here. But there's a potential danger with that approach, too. The Bible can become a collection of life principles rather than a grand overarching story of God interacting with and redeeming people. The Bible is the grand overarching story of God's relationship with people, redeeming us rather than a collection of life principles. It's not principally a collection of life principles. Most of the teaching that we do here at this church is what's called expositional teaching. We take a book of the Bible, there are 66 of them here, and we take a book of the Bible and we teach through it from start to finish, placing it in its historical and cultural context of the time that it was written and in relationship with the rest of the Bible, and then see how it's relevant for us in our own day. Our main focus is not on the life principles that can be found in the text, our main focus is on the story of God's relationship with us. Big difference, really. Life principles can help us be better people if we follow those principles, and that is certainly something that we want and need to work out in this life. But life principles alone can't and will not save us. We need the life-transforming touch of God's Spirit. We need to know Jesus Christ. We need to be in relationship with the God who made us and who will change us from the inside out as we spend time with Him and allow Him to have more and more access to us. God's primary objective is not to make us better-behaved human beings. The point of being a Christian is not to become a nicer person. God wants us to know Him, to love Him, 
to be in an ever-growing relationship with Him. We will become better, nicer, more loving, selfless people as a byproduct of being in a close relationship with Him. And Daniel chapter 11 is the main body of the fourth and, the f- and final vision given to Daniel. Chapter 10, which we looked at last time, it serves as the introduction for the vision and it tells how the vision came to Daniel. And then chapter 12 is going to be the conclusion of the vision and the final words of the book. This vision, it lays out the future of humanity centered around Israel from the time of Daniel to the end of human rule. Virtually all of the stuff that is in Daniel chapter 11 has already been presented in other visions and dreams in the book of Daniel, actually, specifically chapters 2, 7, 8, and 9. But as we have seen before, each of these visions provides details and perspectives that the other visions didn't or don't. Daniel 11 is a difficult chapter for Bible skeptics to accept because of its amazing detail and accuracy of events that had not happened yet when Daniel wrote them down. In the first 35 verses of this chapter, there are at least 135 prophecies which have been literally fulfilled already and they are part of human history. Skeptics have accused this chapter of Daniel of forgery because of that, claiming that it must have been written some 400 years after Daniel lived rather than during his lifetime. And whoever it was who did write the book simply claimed that Daniel was the one who had written it. You need to know that there has never been any real evidence produced to substantiate this claim by skeptics. It's simply a theory that skeptics have come up with to try to explain how these predictions could be so accurate without a supernatural source providing the information. If you don't believe in God and the supernatural, then you need to come up with a natural explanation for what is found in the book of Daniel. But if you believe in God and the supernatural, then the predictions of future events is not a big deal to accept, nor is the rescue of three men from a giant superheated kiln furnace, or the rescue of a man from a den of hungry lions, or Jesus Christ being resurrected from the dead on the third day. Let's begin reading in the second verse of Daniel 11. The first verse of Daniel 11 really kind of goes with Daniel chapter 10, and we talked about that last time. So beginning in verse 2, it says, Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece." Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The messenger of God 
the angel who is speaking here, giving this Daniel or this vision to Daniel. We were introduced to him in Daniel chapter 10, and we believe it to be the angel Gabriel. And these verses talk about the same stuff that has already been talked about in Daniel chapter 2, chapter 7, and chapter 8. And if you remember those chapters and those visions there, I'm sure you recognize at least some of what's being said. You're going, oh, that sounds like the stuff we were talking about before. And it is. This vision gives more details about certain things that were not included in those previous dreams. But it's talking about the same stuff. Four more significant kings, it tells us first, will arise within the Medo-Persian Empire. And the fourth king, Xerxes I, will amass great wealth and a huge army and attempt to invade Greece and take it over. But it will be a disaster that the Persians never recover from. The Battle of Thermopylae, which is portrayed in the movie 300, was part of this Persian invasion of Greece. And you might remember that movie. You might have seen that movie before. This is believed to be the same Xerxes II that was also king during the time of the book of Esther. So if you remember Esther's story in the Bible, Xerxes, this fourth Medo-Persian king that's mentioned here in Daniel, is believed to be the same guy. The Greeks, they hated the Persians because of the unprovoked attack and attempt by the Persians to destroy them. So when Alexander the Great rose to power in Greece, he set his sights on paying Persia back for what they had done to Greece many years earlier. And he viciously attacked the Persians and conquered their vast empire. Then following Alexander's death, his kingdom didn't go to his descendants, as would normally be the case. Instead, it was divided among four of his generals who created four smaller kingdoms from his kingdom. We've talked about this before, so we don't want to you know, belabor all that and drag you through all of that history again. Now, verses 5 through 20 of Daniel 11, we're not going to read those verses this morning I'm just going to quickly summarize what those verses tell us. These verses describe the conflicts and the struggles for power that were going to go on between two of the four kingdoms that emerged from this Greek empire of Alexander the Great. The king of the south, the Ptolemaic Empire, which was uh, largely in Egypt, fought with the king of the north, the Seleucid Empire, largely in the area of Syria. And the struggle between these two kingdoms would go back and forth for about 150 years, with one getting the upper hand and then the other getting the upper hand and back and forth. And the description in these verses in Daniel actually contain a tremendous amount of detail, even including such things as arranged marriages that would take place between these two kingdoms. We're not going to read verses 21 through 35 of this chapter either. So beginning in verse 21, a considerable amount of space is devoted to a single Seleucid Syrian ruler. It's the same ruler who's represented by the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. His name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And we've talked about him before. He reigned during the decline of the Seleucid kingdom and the rise of the Roman Empire. 
between 175 and 164 BC. You might remember the title Epiphanes means God manifest, a title that Antiochus gave to himself. He believed himself to be a god and demanded that people treat him and honor him as a god. He claimed to be the Greek god Zeus in human form. The reason Antiochus Epiphanes is so prominent in Daniel's revelation is because of the impact that he would have on the Jewish people as a vicious enemy and because he serves as a type of the coming final ruler, the Antichrist. As we talked before in our study of Daniel chapter 8, during his reign, Antiochus persecuted the Jewish people. He outlawed the practice of the Jewish religion. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing pigs on its altar, and he erected a statue of Zeus inside the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews referred to this horrible desecration of the temple as the abomination that causes desolation. He was a wicked, vile, double-crossing, backstabber who ordered the slaughtering of thousands of Jewish men, women, and children as he raged against the Jewish religion, trying to stamp it out and remove the God of the Jews and force them to adopt the Greek religion and culture. As we mentioned before, Antiochus Epiphanes was a type or a foreshadow of the coming final ruler that we commonly refer to as the Antichrist. This brings us to verse 36, and we will begin reading now there. It says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. Now, beginning here in verse 36, there is a break in the chapter that takes place here. Up to this point, before we get to verse 36, all the stuff that we've kind of skipped over and I've summarized for you, we have what's a prediction of future events for Daniel and also fulfilled prophecy for us. It's actually history for us. But starting with verse 36, there's this change where we enter now into yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy for us. The revelation changes from talking simply about Antiochus Epiphanes to talking about this final ruler, the Antichrist. It's, it's much more difficult for us to understand the meaning of these prophecies then, since we can't just look into our history books and see how those prophecies were fulfilled. These things haven't yet happened. So there's a lot more guesswork involved in these last verses of this chapter. This final ruler is the little horn depicted in Daniel 7, which comes up out of the ten horns and is, he uproots three of those horns. We talked about that then a little bit. The description given here in verse 36 indicates that this final ruler will have a complete disregard for all other authorities and be accountable to no one but himself. He will even go so far as to exalt himself above the one true God, saying unheard of things, it says, against the God of gods. And as we've already noted, Antiochus Epiphanes, he claimed himself to be a god, so he was a type, a foreshadow of this 
uh, Antichrist that comes in the final days of human rule. Verse 37 says, He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. He'll have no respect, it says, for the one desired of women. There are varying opinions about this, but this is probably a reference to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Devout Jewish women of old hoped to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, as predicted in Genesis 3.15, verse 38. Instead of them, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God unknown to his ancestors. He will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts, He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. This is an interesting description of the god of this man. He will desire power above all else expressed in military might, a god of fortresses. It says a god unknown to his to his ancestors. His, quote, God will not be based on anything that has come before. It will be something new. But when we use the word new here, it means it's something new in relationship to where Daniel himself is standing in human history, but not necessarily something that's new in relationship to where you and I are standing in human history. This new God may be something that we are, in fact, familiar with in our own day. This foreign God will provide him the power and the ability to conquer the mightiest fortresses. This God could be a number of different things. A demon, maybe, or some kind of technology or machine or weapon. We're not told. We do know as we were reminded in our study last time in Daniel 10, that the one behind all of this will be Satan himself, regardless of the form and the function that he may take and use in the physical world. 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. Earlier in Daniel 11, the king of the south is a Ptolemaic kingdom located generally in Egypt. And the king of the north is the Seleucid kingdom located generally in Syria. But these southern and northern kingdoms at the end of human rule will certainly involve more than the country of Egypt and the country of Syria as we know them today. The actual makeup of these southern and northern kingdoms can only be guessed at. In our own day, it would likely include the most powerful of countries and alliances that exist in our world. And in the far future, it could involve kingdoms that are not significant powers at all at the moment. At the time of this war, though, the Antichrist will sweep through like a flood and overthrow many countries, it tells us. And in 41, he will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend 
his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Cushites in submission. The beautiful land talked about here is Israel, who will be invaded by this final ruler. It's thought that the beginning of this war corresponds with that midpoint of the final seven sevens or seven years that are talked about in Daniel chapter 9 when the final ruler breaks his agreement that he had made with Israel and the great persecution of God's people begins. And then 44 says, But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. So after this final ruler, the Antichrist has established himself over these various countries. He'll receive reports that powers from the north and the east are coming to fight against him. And all directions that are given to us here are always in reference to Israel. So what is east of Israel, what is north of Israel, what is south of Israel, what is west of Israel. So Israel is like the center of the world uh, in Bible direction. Says he'll take his stand at the beautiful holy mountain, a reference to Israel, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. This final battle, referred to as Armageddon, will be fought in Israel. I don't think anyone doubts that, whether you are a believer or not. That part of the world has been the center of human conflict for thousands of years. And it will continue to be the center of human conflict. The final sentence says, Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This final ruler, the Antichrist, Satan's counterfeit Messiah, will establish himself as ruler over the world through military might as well as through deceit and bribery, offering power and wealth to those who will join him. And although he will establish a form of peace in the world for a time, it won't last. There will be a great war, unlike anything that has ever occurred before in human history. Massive armies will be assembled, which will fight against one another. And during all of this violence and chaos, this final ruler will turn against the people of God in Israel and vent his full anger and hatred on them. And finally, just before humanity completely wipes itself out, the Lord will come and put an end to all of the conflict and violence, saving the human race from self-annihilation. Think back to the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. The Christ, the rock of God uncut by human hands, will descend and strike the image of human government in its feet and cause the entire thing to crumble to dust. And that rock will itself grow into a great mountain that fills the whole earth and the rule of God will be established. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 for a moment. This is the New Testament version of what we have been reading about here Begin reading in verse 1. It says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, 
not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. In closing, I want to remind us of the amazing accuracy of the prophecies of Daniel. I said earlier that the first 35 verses of Daniel chapter 11 have 135 prophecies that have been fulfilled, which we can see and verify by simply studying history. Isn't it reasonable then for us to think that the rest of the prophecies are also going to be fulfilled? Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, came into our world some 2,000 years ago. He died as a sacrifice for our sins and came back to life on the third day to give us eternal life with Him. All who come to Him in faith, inviting Him into their life and following Him will be saved and receive this new life. Jesus Christ is coming into our world again one day. No one knows the exact moment the second coming of Jesus Christ will be except for the Father in heaven himself. The second time Jesus Christ comes will be to overthrow human rule and establish his good kingdom forever. Isaiah 11.9 says, They will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All of the stuff in this world that makes it awful and painful and disappointing will be wiped out by the Lord at his coming. And all of the things that our heart truly longs for are going to be established by him. He's going to bring peace and life and goodness into our world. And we say, come Lord Jesus, come.